is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 178, covering the week of July 15th through July 19th, 2019. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And, of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you like what we do, you can support the Abbeville Institute by going to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says Support. Click on that, and it'll have donor options. You can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time donation. And your donation is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. While you're there, also give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook, and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. It's a great way to keep up with what we're doing at the Institute. And please remember to share this podcast around. If you like it, share it on social media, rate it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to help increase traffic and spread the word. You can also get your Abbeville Institute apparel if you go to that webpage again, abbevilleinstitute.org, at the top of the page under that tab that says support. You click on that, a shop tab will appear, and you click on that shop button. It takes you out, and get, you can get all the great Abbeville Institute apparel that we have for sale, hats, golf shirts, T-shirts, golf towels, great stuff. So you want to get that Abbeville Institute. It's all embroidered, so it's not screen printed. That means it's going to last a long time. High-quality shirts, high-quality embroidering. So this is good stuff. It's made in North Carolina. You can't go wrong with it. So go on out there and get that Abbeville Institute apparel as well. And I have to say, this is the podcast going out. Our summer school is starting this week. So for those of you going to the summer school, hope you have a good time. If you're listening to this before you go over there, I unfortunately won't be there this year at the summer school, but uh, we've got a great topic. And be planning for next year. We do the summer school always in either June or July. Uh, of the summer. So uh, next year, I don't know what the topic is going to be. Don't know what week it's going to be yet, but uh, start making your plans. If you want to go to the summer school, it is a good time. You meet a lot of people of, uh, of like mind. Uh, you get great lectures and we do a lot of good stuff there too. So it's, it's a fantastic time. And um, it is one of our signature events for the Abbeville Institute. So all that said, <clears throat> let's talk about the material this week. And there's one particular theme for this week, and that's hypocrisy. And I say this the theme of this week, except for the for the book review. That that's something entirely different. And uh, that was a very nice review, by the way. And I'll cover that last. But the other four pieces of the week come down to that theme of hypocrisy. And how do I mean that? Well, if you look at the at the titles, a history lesson for Ted Cruz, the land of Lincoln bans Confederate railroad, defending the South against fake news, and the neo Confederate SCOTUS justice. So. Let's start with the first piece. If you don't, if you didn't catch the news over the weekend, last weekend, we had Ted Cruz from Texas coming out and saying that the action of the governor of the state of Tennessee and actually upholding the law and issuing his Nathan Bedford Forrest and Confederate Memorial Proclamation uh, was just a, a distortion of history and it shouldn't have been done and he should do all kinds. I mean, there was this was just Ted Cruz virtue signaling. You see, Ted Cruz is trying to position himself as a quote-unquote national historian, or I say national, national politician, excuse me, not historian, but politician. And so by doing that, he has to come out and say all the right things to all the right people. The problem with all of that, of course, is that none of the people that would care about uh, him saying that are going to vote for him. And this is where you get into this. I mean, wh- why would why would um, someone who why would someone virtue signal when the people that really matter uh, aren't going to care that you said these things or not? Um, 
Now, of course, this is part and parcel of the uh, of the modern Republican Party and the modern neoconservatives who try to go out and um, say that the war is a righteous cause. I mean, this is David Barton. This is uh, Bill O'Reilly. This is that entire crop of people, Glenn Beck, all these people coming out and saying that uh, the war is all about slavery, nothing but slavery, and it's, it's slavery, slavery, slavery. There's no difference between these people and the left in that way. And so this is why you know the Abbeville Institute exists, because it's hard to find allies. It's hard to find people in this wilderness that actually think, wait a second here, let's critically examine the career of Nathan Bedford Forrest. So we actually had uh, a man who's written a biography of Forrest, one of the most recent biographies, wrote it for Regnery History. It's a great book. We've reviewed it on the website. It's, uh, Samuel Mitchum. He is a Ph.D. historian. He's not just some fly-by-nighter. He's a Ph.D. historian, so he knows what he's talking about. And he wrote this little piece on uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and it shows the complexity of Forrest's life, and really that's what we have to understand. With History is complex. One of my favorite quotes about history is, life is not simple, and therefore history, which is past life, is not simple. And so just this simple caricature of Nathan Bedford Forrest as this evil guy, um, who did all these horrible things. I mean, uh, David Barton actually had the, had the audacity to say that Forrest was skinning people alive with his saber. Now, that's, that's literally impossible uh, to do that. <laughs> um, but uh, that said, um, the fact is our, our perception of Forrest has been molded by the left and how they've uh, portrayed Forrest in recent biographies. And of course, tying him into the Ku Klux Klan, which, frankly, um, I know that, that Mitchum says in the piece that Forrest was attached to it, but there's a recent biography of the Klan uh, by a, a person who's nowhere near a Forrest admirer, and she's uh, written a, a book entitled Ku Klux, where she says that um, it's the, to say that Forrest is even around when the thing is created is dubious, and that his attachment to the Klan is also dubious. I mean, it's not really clear what kind of role he even played other than maybe a figurehead. Um, so we know that, uh, I mean, there's this, there's this perception of Forrest as part of the, as part of the Klan, but, and, and what Mitchum does here as well is go into the complexity of that particular time period. Um, it's not to defend the Klan. Nobody would do that. Uh, but it's to say, look, I mean, here you have Reconstruction. You've got one arm camp on one side, the U.S. Army, and also the Union League and others. He didn't mention them. But you have these militia groups that are attacking former Confederates. Really, I mean, they were. And then what? what is going to happen? You just had a whole bunch of men fighting a war. Do you think these men are just going to sit by and not let this go unchallenged? So they formed their own paramilitary groups, and you had two arm camps in the South. This is a byproduct of the war. It's a byproduct of Reconstruction. And Forrest, to his credit, said, look, when, when, the, when Tennessee was redeemed, when the Democrats took back control, he was done with it. And then, of course, he took a lot of heat when he went to this uh, 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 meeting, essentially, uh, a festival, which was uh, organized by African-Americans in Tennessee. And he gave a speech, kissed a, uh, an African-American lady on the cheek. A lot of people hated Forrest for this. Um, so is this the man that's the, uh, the, the ardent, nasty, uh, you know, skinning people alive uh, Confederate traitor? Or is there more to Nathan Bedford Forrest than that? Um, is there more to, I mean, sure, he was a great, probably the greatest general of the Western theater. Um, and yes, he was a slave trader, which uh, we know that uh, out of any of this, and you go back to the founding generation, they all, all, all these people who were looked down on slave traders more than anything else because they were considered to be uh, low individuals. But 
Forrest also uh, said, look, to his slaves, if you want to uh, fight for me for the war, I'll give you your freedom. And he did it before the war was over. Um, so Forrest, like any individual, is a complex individual. And I think simply just to have these platitudes and slogans about Forrest is pure hypocrisy. I mean, Ted Cruz from the state of Texas, which was a Confederate state, which has a long history of pro-Southern views, um, is now, I mean, he's being a hypocrite. Uh, there, there's little doubt of this. Of course, Ted Cruz is not from the United States. He's from Canada, and his father's from Cuba. So uh, in some ways, what do you expect? Um, and that's, I mean, this is, this is, this is where, uh, during the 2016 campaign, when Trump uh, pointed out that uh, Cruz might make a good prime minister in Canada, I mean, it was hilarious when he said that. Um, but uh, he has not been, his family lineage is not long-standing here in America. So uh, when you have uh, that kind of perspective, and of course it's heavily influenced by the neoconservative historians in the Republican Party, um, but this is problematic. That was not necessarily hypocritical, but the, uh, his, his position is just stupid. But the position of, uh, of the governor, Illinois governor, J.B. Pritzer, is hypocritical, and this is a Paul Yarborough piece, The Land of Lincoln Bands Confederate Railroad. So Confederate Railroad is a Southern rock band or a country band, uh, and they were going to perform at, a, at the Illinois State Fair, and the Illinois governor, governor said, you can't be here because you have Confederate in your name and you have a Confederate flag on your symbol. So we're not going to allow you to play in Illinois. So Paul Yarborough points out that Illinois was one of the most racist states in the Union uh, in, in the period before the war. I mean, this is a state that didn't even allow black people into the state. What's more racist? And he points out Lincoln's positions on race uh, and other Illinois uh, residents on race in the 1850s into the 1860s. But are they banning the phrase land of Lincoln uh, because it's racist? No, it's just the stupid virtue signaling again on part of idiots in America that this American symbol, the Confederate flag, it's a purely American symbol recognized around the world as such. As a symbol of defiance of central authority, it is a well-respected symbol. I think I gave, I told the story about how uh, somebody emailed me about back in the 80s when a, a couple of, uh, of Chinese <coughs> um, exchange, business exchange individual, uh, citizens came over to the, to the United States, to Texas. And this guy drove him around, and then um, he said, he was shown things, and all these people wanted to do was see Robert E. Lee. That's all they wanted to do. They wanted to see Robert E. Lee because Robert E. Lee was a symbol of America. This is back in, the, in about 1984, he said. Robert E. Lee was a symbol of America. And they didn't know anything about America. But in China, he was defiance of the Yankee Empire, you see. They didn't know where many of these places were. They barely even knew where Texas was. But they knew Robert E. Lee. You see, because Robert E. Lee is, 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 is purely American. He is one of the greatest symbols of America that's ever existed. Not to the left. He is a traitor, a, a racist, all these other things they like to use because they know, they understand what Robert E. Lee really does mean for America. If you, if you have Robert E. Lee as an American symbol, then uh, you are essentially saying, we don't like you federal government. We don't, we don't support tyrannical federal authority. We thumb our nose at that. This is defiance. It's defiance to their, to their worldview, and they don't like it. Now, it hasn't always been so, uh, so hysterical with these people. 
um, and their positions. And I want to I want to go to the other portion of hypocrisy, the neo-Confederate SCOTUS justice. If you read this, we actually I actually had somebody email us thinking that I mean we we're actually favoring uh, booting someone off the court, um, impeaching someone off the court or asking them to resign because they admired Judah P. Benjamin. That's not the point. That wasn't the point at all. Of course, uh, Reverend Larry Bean, who wrote this great guy, uh, really funny. Um, he is a, a Lutheran minister or Lutheran priest, I should say, in uh, in Louisiana. He's, he's rock solid on the South. I mean, he's been right there in the front lines in New Orleans when uh, all of the uh, monuments were taken down. This he's a, he's a good man. And he wrote this thing for LeRockwell.com. We carried it up because it was just so funny. Um, he, he goes through this long part of the email where he talks about, you know, all the things that this person had to say positive about Judah P. Benjamin. And then, and then posted the speech this justice gave, the address this justice gave in, in Louisiana, praising Judah P. Benjamin. Now, when you click the link, he says, now find out who this justice is. You click that and you find out this is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In 2002, this wasn't 30 years ago or 40 This was 2002. Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave a speech in Louisiana praising Judah P. Benjamin. Glossing over his pro-slavery and all these things. Kind of means mentions it. Well, you know, but then all these great things. Now imagine if Brett Kavanaugh or uh, John Roberts or Clarence Thomas or anybody, you know, uh, Leto, or uh, Gorsuch, imagine if any of those individuals had given this particular speech that would have been paraded around in the Senate, particularly the last two, Gorsuch and uh, Kavanaugh, that would have been put up on boards in the Judiciary Committee, and they would have just excoriated over this. How can you say that you're a white supremacist? Yet, the most liberal of all the justices on the bench, perhaps, I mean, arguably, the most leftist justice on the bench, can get up and praise Judah P. Benjamin and nobody even knows about it. Why isn't anyone calling for a resignation? I mean, if this, again, if any of these individuals made this kind of speech, it would be immediate. We have to impeach these people because they have said nice things about Judah P. Benjamin. When Donald Trump had the audacity to say that Robert E. Lee's a great general, I mean, the people went berserk over this. But if Barack Obama stood up and said, Ah, Robert E. Lee's a good... Oh, I'm not going to say anything. Nothing. Can't say anything about that. No, no, no. They wouldn't say a word. They wouldn't say a word. Here you have their hero, R-B-G. R-B-G, they call her. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Their hero praising the Jewish Confederate Judah P. Benjamin. But nobody bats an eye. This is the hypocrisy of the entire thing. I, I mean, it's great that she got up and praised Judah P. Benjamin. We should have more of that. This is a, a, not a, an insane speech. I mean, this is when we have actually sanity from people. Hey, you know, this guy might have done some things we don't like, but look at all the great things that he did. Hey, you know, Forrest might have done some things, but look, I mean, look, this guy's a great general. He's He was a great person in Tennessee history. Look at the things he did. Look at the things he said about race later on. We're allowed to do this with Lincoln. Lincoln can say some of the most racist things in America that you could say, but yet because, you know, later on he kind of his views evolve. Well, we can we can just say that's no problem. That's no big deal. That's no, uh, no, I mean, we, he didn't really believe that. His, his views were evolving. Why is it that one person's views can evolve, but another person's can't? Why? 
because the persons that use that fits their agenda. So see, this is the hypocrisy of the left and really of the right too. I mean, the right is just stupid on this stuff too, the neoconservatives. They're ridiculous on these things. Why is it one can evolve and one can't? I don't know. Because we live in a stupid world. Because we live in a world that's so hypersensitive and so insane that normal things can't just, you can't just say, hey, you know, GDP Benjamin had, was worthwhile. Hey, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, a great general. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he did some things that uh, nowadays we wouldn't consider to be good, but, you know, let's look at his entire record. Let's do that. Let's look at Lee's entire record. Uh, somebody just sent me a couple of times today this piece from The Atlantic that keeps getting uh, recycled uh, about the myth of the kindly General Lee, which I expl- completely destroyed on this website a couple of years ago. Uh, when it, the, t- the title of that article is uh, Robert E. Lee versus the Twitter Historians. Um, and, I mean, it's so, it destroyed them so thoroughly that one of the individuals who I wrote about in that particular piece, not by name, but he clearly found out about it and blocked me on Twitter because... Uh, I was using his words, and uh, it embarrassed him so much that he just went ahead and did that uh, because he was ridiculous. But anyways, um, I hadn't even said anything to, to this person on social media, but he decided just to block me. Um, so it's uh, it's embarrassing that these people continue to run their mouths uh, when they're not being honest about you know what history actually is. It's complex. These are people that do good things, bad things, things that w- they're men of their times, uh, what are we supposed to do about that? So finally, uh, for the other hypo- the piece on hypocrisy, we have Defending the South Against Fake News by Gene Kaiser. And uh, Gene's a great, great guy, um, somebody who really is just fighting the good fight all the time. And he, he takes his time often to write to letters to the newspapers. Now, if that's what you like to do, if that's something you can do uh, to... Uh, to try to fight back, then do it. Um, he says, I have some correspondence with an editor of the Post and Courier this week. When I sent them a letter for publication in response to their July 6, 2019 editorial, don't let extremists define our national symbols. He says, as a result, I saw an opening to send some valuable Southern history to the newspaper, and I jumped on it. Their editorial is good in that they are alarmed at Nike removing the Betsy Ross flag, as well as the Charlottesville City Council ending a celebration of Thomas Jefferson and the idiots on the San Francisco school board voting to paint over an 80-year-old work of art portraying the life of George Washington. The, the Post and Courier does not want us to validate bad people who attempt to redefine patriotic symbols. But wait! They and the media have been doing exactly that for years ad nauseum. So he writes a letter. He says, look, yeah, I mean, uh, he says, you know, this editorial shows your heart is in the right place, but you need to look in the mirror. You let the KKK and Dylan Roof define the Confederate battle flag, though neither of them has an iota of claim to it. You put the Southern Poverty Law Center's disgraceful campaign to remove Confederate monuments on your front page, and you agitate all the time against ancient monuments, including the Calhoun Monument on Marion Square, and even against the word Dixie. And now you are surprised when Colin Kaepernick and others follow your lead and turn the Betsy Ross flag, Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington into vile racists? The foundation of our great nation was indeed set in 1776, as you write, but it was certainly not reset in 1865. It died a violent death in 1865. And the Republic of the Founding Fathers states were supreme, but after 1865, the federal government and northern majority were supreme, which was the Norse goal all along. Now, the editor wrote back, he said, and asked who the U was, and that gave me an opening. He says, actually, the U is the Post and Courier. 
but also the news media in general, because so much of the media is of the same political philosophy, which has utterly politicized history in recent decades. As serious historians know, you can't apply 21st century standards to the past. When you do that, you aren't understanding the past at all. You're using it as a current day political tool. Your Robert Baer explained to us on the front page on May 16th why we should hate the word Dixie after the College of Charleston in a disgusting fit of political correctness changed the 175-year-old name of Dixie Plantation. But Baer then implied why we should also hate the song Dixie and word plantation. Do you not find it odd that four weeks later on June 15th, the Antifa vandalizers of the Defenders Monument at the Battery also had large signs that said Dixie is dead? Maybe they were inspired by Barrett. Maybe it was just coincidence. But the Post and Courier is not is really not a fair or accurate with Southern history at all. He says, you let the KKK and Dylan Roof define the Confederate battle flag, though neither of them has an iota of claim to it. The battle flag is arguably the greatest symbol of pure American value our nation has ever produced because it was a soldier's flag, not a national flag. It flew over the bloodiest battlefields of a war in which 800,000 died and over a million were wounded. It never flew over a slave ship like the U.S. and British flags did for over two centuries. The largest clan groups of the early 20th century carried the American flag. Your editorial had mentioned the Declaration of Independence, so I wanted to tell you that when Southerners debated seceding in the months before they actually did, the most widely quoted phrase of the secession debate came from the Declaration of Independence. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Whenever, if any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. And please don't quote that garbage about states' rights being about the right to own another person. The Confederate Constitution allowed free or slave states to join. Five slave states fought for the North throughout the entire war, and the Emancipation Proclamation deliberately exempted them as well as slaves in most Confederate territory already captured by the Union Army. He says, the one thing that can be proven beyond the shadow of a doubt is that the North did not go to war to end slavery. They went to war to preserve the Union, as Lincoln said over and over, because all their wealth and power were tied to the Union. Um, So, he says, uh, people are so fed up with idiotic, idiotic political correctness, the removal of Kate Smith's monument, and as your editorial pointed out, Charlottesville canceling Thomas Jefferson's birthday, the San Francisco school board's decision to paint over a beautiful 80-year-old mural of the life of George Washington, the Kaepernick Nike thing over the Bessie Ross flag. It is disgusting and alarming, as your editorial pointed out. It is like cancer. It ain't going to stop. It needs to be opposed and defeated, which will be hard because one political party is heavily invested in it. He concluded by saying, I wish the Post and Curry would give me a chance to write long articles on history as you do with others. Everything I write is solidly argued and documented. It would definitely add to the debate. Regardless, thank you for letting me send this to you. So the nice thing about Gene is that, Mr. Kaiser, is that he is going about, again, he's doing this and he's trying to be respectful as much as possible. But you have to point out the stupidity and hypocrisy in these people. Now, maybe they don't see it. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that they don't see it. It just matters that you fight back in a way. And so if this is what you want to do, people have asked, what can we do to help? Well, Write letters to the editor. Make them well-argued and researched. Don't, uh, it's better not to rant. It's better not to, um, to sound angry. You can do it in ways that are respectful. And at least somebody knows that you're out there speaking for them. So this is all we can do. And, of course, educate. Try to do things like this podcast, write articles for the Institute. Try to do as much as we can to educate. Go to conferences. Try to become as educated as possible so you can fight back against this nonsense. 
There are a lot of people out there that don't like it. And as we all pointed out in 2015, this is a slippery slope. It's going to get to American symbols. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, the Constitution, the Declaration. All these things are going to come under attack, and they have. I actually pointed this out in 2009, 10 years ago, when I wrote my politically incorrect guide to the Founding Fathers. You could say at that point maybe it wasn't necessary, but it is today. I think more necessary than ever because of that. So um, I love that piece. I love it when people point out hypocrisy. I mean, these people are so aware. Oh, we got to worry about Betsy Ross and, and uh, George Washington. Well, I mean, you started it, right? When you say these things have to come down because they are quote unquote racist, well, then George Washington was a racist. Thomas Jefferson was a racist. James Madison was a racist. All these people are racists. The Declaration was written by racists. The Constitution was written by racists, clearly. Uh, even the people that were anti-slavery were still racists. So, I mean, what are you going to do? All that stuff would have to go. U.S. history would have to start at 1970 or 1975, or maybe even not till 2000, maybe not till Barack Obama was inaugurated as president in 2009. Maybe then we can say that that's when U.S. history starts. So, I mean, this is where we are today in America. These arguments are just plain stupid. And the more you use that term, it loses all of its meaning. I mean, we're seeing everything now is called that. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's not racist or at all, but it's racist. So um, where, do you, where does it stop? Where, where do we stop with, with these things? And where, where do you draw a line and say, well, you can take down these symbols because they're racist, but you can't take down these symbols because they're racist? You can't. I mean, really, you can't. It's, it's the French Revolution. It's just a little bit by a little bit by a little bit. Uh, as a, a colleague of mine said uh, in a book that he wrote, Michael Malice's The New Right, uh, the left goes to 10, and then the right compromises at 5, and so the next time the left goes to 15, and the right compromises at 10, and then you just keep on going. You just keep going up the line, right? There's never a stop to it. There's never an end. You, have to, you, can't, say, you can't compromise at 5. You just have to go to 0. No. We're not letting you do it. You can throw a fit. You can be a little petulant child and cry and whine and do all the things you're going to do. But it's no. Who's going to be the adult? No. We're not. I mean, you have to be the adult in this situation. So, and it's fun to point out their hypocrisy and their stupidity because I think it's just clearly evident from everything they do. Now, last piece of the week is this book review on Tuesday. It was actually more of an essay on Jim Kibler. Now, uh, the book review is on his uh, most important work, Our Father's Fields, which is a wonderful story of uh, Kibler's work on his home, which is a, a plantation there in, uh, in South Carolina that he bought and uh, fixed up, and uh, it, he restored it. Uh, it's a beautiful place. Jim Kibler has tried to live the life of the Southern agrarian sense. Uh, he, of course, was a university professor a long time at University of Georgia, taught literature there. He goes to almost all of our uh, summer school events. Um, he is, um, he's been to many of our conferences. He's, I mean, uh, one of the intellectual fathers of the Abbeville Institute. And so it was nice to have uh, Robin Spencer Lattimore write this uh, glowing review, not only of the book, but also as Dr. Kibler as, as a person. He's a nice man, uh, anyone that's ever met him. He's a great conversationalist. Someone who likes to talk about just a, I mean, he, he can talk about so many different things. Uh, he's he really is in many ways um, the epitome of a modern Renaissance man when it comes to uh, different subjects and fields, and he loves to 
to uh, talk about not only literature, but also history and philosophy and, and religion and um, music. Um, so he, he really is, and of course, agriculture. Um, he's someone interested in trying to, re- to revitalize the, the small farmer and really try to live the life of, uh, of, the, of the agrarians, which he so admires. So um, this piece was wonderful just to have perspective on that. And, and uh, Mr. Lattimore didn't even know uh, Jim Kibler. He met him uh, by chance at one point. The two just hit it off, and he actually went to his plantation. And uh, Jim will do that. If he likes you and he, he thinks you, he'll invite you to his house. Come on over. Um, he is uh, anti-technology. <laughs> he doesn't have an email. Uh, Jim Kibler still doesn't use email. So um, it's, it's just fun. To, he's, he's a throwback to an older, older age. And uh, he's just an interesting guy. And, and it's nice to have something that was so complimentary of, of Dr. Kibler for the website. And um, it was great for us to be able to publish that. But um, if you haven't read Our Father's Fields, it's more than just uh, a, a, a chronicle. It really is um, a, a discussion of the agrarian tradition. And it's a nice contribution to that, uh, to that field of literature. Um, it's so deep. And um, it's, it's just a, a wonderful book, a wonderful story about the family that lived at that plantation. And so not only was Dr. Kibler revitalizing the, the building itself, he was revitalizing the family. And I think that's just wonderful. Um, so go out and get Our Father's Fields. Um, it, it's, uh, it's still in print. Uh, you can still get it on, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, I believe. Uh, and uh, you can find used copies as well if you don't want to buy a new copy and save a little money. Uh, but um, go out and get it because it's well worth your time to read it. Uh, it's not, I mean, he, it's, it's almost like reading a, uh, a biographical history, uh, but it's got literary flair, and so that's nice. Um, and so you should definitely go in and, and dive into that. And I, I love this review. It's a long review. I mean, this, this review is thousands and thousands of words, but it's not just a review of the book. It's a review of Dr. Kibler himself and the man that he is. So it's a great addition to the Abbeville Institute, and it's nice to have these pieces on people that, have been influential in the southern, modern southern uh, tradition, uh, and who are looking to uh, look back at the old and what's valuable in the old, and that's what Dr. Kibler is doing every day, trying to find what's valuable, true and valuable in the southern tradition, and live that life. So I hope you enjoyed this week in review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, good day. Mm-hmm.